Broadcasting from our secret compound at Silicon Slopes, Utah, overlooking the entire Utah Tech Corridor, this is the Utah CTO Show. Bite-sized interviews with Utah's tech leaders where we dig into the growth of the Utah tech scene, the stories behind some of the greatest local successes, and the secrets to growing tech leadership in Utah. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Jenkins and Brett Flake. Hello, and welcome back to the Utah CTO Show. I'm Brett, and this is Chris. Hey, guys. And today we are joined by Richard Tripp, who is the inventor of the POV method and an experienced SaaS executive here in the Valley. Done at several companies. Richard, how you doing? Good. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me here on the podcast. Yeah, we appreciate you being here. So we want to kind of dig into your story. You know, I think uh, you and I met, uh, what, a year and a half ago or so and uh, really talking kind of about product and engineering as a whole and yeah. how do we, you know, you bring them together sometimes. But I'm just curious just for our audience and for myself, even understanding a little bit more about you, like tell me some of the things that you enjoy in your role and the things that you're doing with engineering, like help us understand more about you. Cool. So, you know, I'm a creative person and my mind is kind of wired towards systems thinking. And I think that's part of the reason why I gravitated towards software. You know, I just like systems. I didn't really know that about myself until I got into the tech field and I started dealing with complex systems and for me, you know, being a systems thinker means you tend to think in terms of patterns and you enjoy kind of large volumes of information. Mm -hmm. And then you're able to take from that kind of a strategic insight that you'd like to implement or create out of it. And uh, there's lots of different systems. You know, coding is just one kind of system. Mm -hmm. Software is another kind of system. Music's another kind of system. Math is another kind of system. There's just lots of different systems. And so I'm a systems thinker, and I enjoy thinking like a systems thinker. I've, I've talked to a number of systems thinkers about it, and when I say that, they go, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah I know what you mean. I know yeah. what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind of go through that too. And I don't know if it's necessarily a preference as much as just how our brain works. <laughs> yeah. And we're often goofy, you know, when we get around a new system that we don't know and that we're not familiar with, we kind of just crash around and make mistakes with it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until we get a feel for like its entirety and its components. And then we start thinking very naturally about just how to make this system work better. That's something I've always been wired to do, and I think that's part of what's made me enjoy working in software. So you've done that for a number of companies yeah. uh, recently, right? Where you, even in the last several years, right? You've yeah. come to a bunch of them. Tell us a little bit more about that kind of background and how you've progressed to now the inventor of the POV method. Yeah, you bet. So first 10 years of my career, I was working at Symantec and Intuit on some of the early SaaS systems. Back then, we called it on-demand. Basic idea was there were all these 32-bit client apps that we were installing on host machines, and then we were also building server-side software. And people would set up their own IT environments to do this client-server type stuff. And then somebody was like, hey, you know what, let's put all these this server-based software on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And instead of uh, uh, on an a bunch of publicly-facing servers that we call the Internet, mm -hmm. and instead of building these really thick clients, let's try and use browsers as a way to access all this and have more of the work get done on the server side. And, right. and, uh, and so these were big migration projects where we were trying to pull apps out of like this thick client installed software and make them uh, available on the web. And we called it on demand. 
And I worked on those projects, and it was they were big projects. You know, they, they involved hundreds of millions of dollars, and it just gave me a lot of exposure just being in the guts of those to the whole process of what it's like to actually build an on-demand, like, software-as-a-service application that's available through a browser. And this was all during the Agile revolution, you know. So, I mean, I remember tearing up 150-page product functional requirement documents, you know, at the behest of Object Mentor and throwing them in the trash and then handing us Post-it notes and big (laughs) hang them on a wall sheets of paper and saying, this is how you plan now. (laughs) And, uh, And I remember going through those projects and assuming as a product manager at the time, I was going to be able to find like a good approach to product management. And so for 10 years, you're reading books and working on projects and listening to my leaders. And about 10 years in, I started thinking, you know, we don't really have a model for how to think about this. Mm-hmm. It's like what we have is management techniques that were lifted out of manufacturing. That's like where lean came from. And they've been transposed on this IT-based phenomena that's like evolving exponentially and has its own characteristics as a system. And we're trying to like jerry rig everything to fit into those models, but it's just not working Mm -hmm. as successfully. And so I started about 10 years ago, about 10 years into my career, I started thinking and it felt crazy to me at the time. I was like, who am I to think about this? Mm -hmm. But I just started thinking like from first principles, like what, what are we trying to accomplish? Which begs the question of who are we trying to accomplish this for? I also had some amazing conversations with engineers. First 10 years of my career, I felt like engineers mostly didn't like me. And when I'd show up as a product <laughs> manager and I'd share my ideas with them, they'd just ridicule me and laugh no at me. No product managers ever thought that. Yeah. yeah right? <laughs> and I just felt, felt kind of picked on. And then after a while, it was kind of like a begrudging, like, put an arm around my neck and give me a noogie. Like, they, mm-hmm. were, they kind of liked me a little bit. Yeah. But finally, one day, uh, I had this great engineer just say to me, you know, Richard, you could just work on listening more. You don't have to try and sell every all, every idea you have, why don't you listen to us? And so I really took that to heart and I started sitting down with engineers just one after another and asking them questions and then just asking more questions and just taking more and more notes. And I began to comprehend just how intelligently the engineers were thinking about things. Mm-hmm. But I also sensed this enormous disparity between how the engineers were actually thinking and what the leadership teams of the company were expecting. Mm-hmm. It was like they were just completely different universes of thought that mm-hmm. didn't even overlap at all. And I thought, you know, the job of product leadership is really finding a way to bridge the gap between those two. Oh, yeah. So That's when I think about like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leading other engineers, I think it's really easy to, to mistake a lot of the brutal honesty or, you know, it might come across as criticism or whatever. But, yeah, like engineers, if you can meet meet them halfway, you'll figure out that they actually like everybody. They, they like you. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, I, and, and Sorry, they would tell me that. They would tell me that. They would, say, they would say it's not that we don't like you. It's just that you're saying something that makes absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> well, you're not listening, right? Like... <laughs> and, and you're not listening. And, and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to take offense at this. I'm actually going to try to comprehend this point of view that they're sharing with me. And that fundamentally changed me. And it also gave me a lot of great context of understanding what engineers were solving for, understanding the concept of technical debt, understanding why engineers as makers, really as creatives, uh, hated being just rushed into cranking something out quickly that Mm -hmm. they didn't have context around and didn't understand 
and then throwing that over the backlog wall. Yeah. Hopefully it's going to work. And then when it doesn't work, it comes back, you know, the, the feedback comes back that they did it wrong yeah. and they get blamed. And they're like, well, we didn't even really understand what you guys wanted us to build. So I thought a lot about that. And I started working on an approach. Um, it was a hack at first, and I hacked it together with engineers. I was like, okay, well, if this is what you guys want. Like, if you want really well-detailed requirements and clarity, and if what the business wants is a product that's actually going to really move the needle in terms of growing the addressable market mm-hmm. and growing lifetime value for the customers, then what we got to do is draw a big box between those two and figure out how to get it done. Sure. And they would quip with me and be like, that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> that's what product management Like, it's product management. That's what you're supposed to do. And I said, I, I finally was one day I was willing to tell them. I said, look, I, I'm so sorry to break the news to you guys. And you're right. It is my job. And it is what everyone expects me to do. But the truth is I don't have any idea how to do this. And I don't think anyone I'm talking to – I'm 10 years into my career, and I don't think yeah. anyone else I'm talking to really has an idea how to do this either. So how about we just start with these two problem points and come up with a solution together? Yeah. And we started working together effectively on designing a new system. And what was funny is once the engineers caught on to that idea, oh, we're designing a new system, like a new system mm-hmm. for actually accomplishing these kind of disparate problem goals that we are trying to <laughs> – yeah. then they got super engaged. <laughs> you know, they had a ton of ideas. And that gave me an epiphany, which was the way you get a maker, a creator involved is you don't come to them with a requirement. Yeah. You don't come to them with a, a, a dictation – of what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You come to them with problems to solve that you honestly don't know how to solve. And that's actually what gets them excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like kind of like tearing apart the question. And so I started pulling engineers in. I know now it's like quite in vogue to have cross-functional teams and sure. have engineers involved in design. But 10 years ago, this was actually not a common idea. And I just started kind of pulling engineers in I started to view my job as going out and doing the kind of market research that would give us the ability to say, you know, there's an underserved niche market right there. And if we can solve this problem for them, it'll be valuable. But now in terms of how to solve this problem, as the PM, I can't just design this thing in my own head. And if I do, it's going to be full of problems and we need to iterate it. There's no way I can build the bridge of understanding from what I'm thinking about all the way down to like coding level activities that you guys can put on the backlog. So would you please come over on this side of the backlog with me? Yeah. I call it the dark side of the backlog. (laughs) (laughs) The engineers come around on the dark side of the backlog with me and actually help me write user stories. But instead of writing them, just trying to write the story, let's go through some design activities Mm -hmm. and some creative experimentation together that helps us start to understand the problem we're solving. And actually, I would like to see your thoughts on designs. And the more I've done this, the more I've witnessed that, think about it, software delivery teams are usually made up about 80% of engineers. And engineers are the master systems thinkers Mm -hmm. in the company. And really, the problem I was struggling with was helping engineers understand the logic that I was trying to use to solve my business problem. And then one day I thought, if I could just help them understand the logic of it, I mean, these people understand logic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like logic is kind of their whole world. So if I can just help them understand the logic, then they're going to be like, oh, well, that's actually kind of trivial. Like the problem you're trying to solve is really not that hard to solve. I have ideas about how to do that. And I'll tell you right now, that's been the secret of all the success I've had in software since. And while I'm a systems thinker, I'm not a professional programmer. 
And yet I've led multiple engineering teams. And usually it's because we start with this level of conversation right. where I say, that's not the job I'm going to do. And that's not the job I know how to teach you how to do. We got right. leaders who are going to help with that. But what I do need your help with is here's our logical quandary. What are your thoughts on how to solve this? And when engineers get that, when they've thought through that kind of solution, their ability to invent solutions and create solutions becomes truly amazing. And what I've seen is that executives love that. If you can figure out how to gap or bridge the gap with these engineers so that they can get on that same page, yeah, that's huge. That, that sort of drives an organization in a direction together rather than sort of apart in a way, right, from your engineering team? You know, what's ironic is executives are just kind of expect that from the engineering mm -hmm. team. They assume that's what's happening, and it comes as something of a nasty revelation when they realize it's not that way, Yeah. particularly in a startup, because in a startup, a co-founding CTO doesn't sit down with the business partner and say, I'm not going to write a line of code until you give me my user stories. <laughs> yeah. They actually sit there and whiteboard it out, figure it out, come up with a solution together. They work very naturally this way in the beginning. It's more that when the company starts to scale scales, yeah. and then you start building teams of engineers who actually mm -hmm. haven't founded startups and haven't really thought a whole lot about business and instead have just developed a technical skill set, that you start to run into this problem. And so being able to provide them with a framework that helps them think about it uh, really, in my opinion, accelerates all aspects of product delivery and gets it going in the direction of success. Yeah, so uh, my career is dovetailing a little bit into product management more. Previously, my background's in, in development. And yeah. so I'm wondering, you know, maybe what sort of advice would you have for the younger version of you or, or maybe for me entering yeah. the product management world? Yeah, so understanding the business of a startup, I think, is critical. And one of the things I incorporate with my method is this simple definition of a business model. You have a piece that I call customer acquisition. This is your sales and marketing team. Mm -hmm. This is all the money the company's spending there. And their job is to source leads that then buy the product. And then if you're a SaaS company, you're in a continuity revenue play, which means you then need the customer to pay. You take all the risk up front. You pay the customer acquisition costs. You pay the onboarding costs. And you've only collected a month or two of revenue from the customer. So the wager is that they're going to pay for five years. And that leads to the second part of the business process, which is customer buying objective fulfillment. And that's really product development, customer service, operations, and finance. And these two separate groups, um, engineering is often way down in the guts mm -hmm. of buying objective fulfillment. And they don't even know what the buying objective is. They don't even know what the solution is supposed to be. They're more just pulling stuff off the backlog and trying to get tasks done. The engineers who I think become truly outstanding leaders recognize that it's not just technical leadership that's required, but it's also business acumen. Mm -hmm. The ability to understand that not all leads are great, not all customers that get signed up are actually worth continuing to invest in. In fact, there's a group of customers that start to emerge and become what I call the center of your success. And these customers and what they're trying to do, if you can understand them and how to orient the product development organization towards that group, mm -hmm. then this is where you start to emerge as a very powerful product leader. What I would encourage any engineer who's thinking, you know what, I think I'd like to do founder level work, or I'd like to actually maybe do a startup, or I want to join, you know, some team that's actually creating a business model as well as a technology platform. 
I would say study the business model. And here's the problem. There aren't good books to read on that for yeah. SaaS. <laughs> so in some ways, this method that I've invented is my attempt to take the things that I learned and that were successful and make them accessible mm-hmm. to people who are trying to solve exactly that problem. So do you ever second guess yourself on that? Just, you know, you mentioned in the very beginning, you were like, who am I to think about this? I could probably find anecdotes or at least some books or something about that in those 10 years ago. But now that you've sort of started building it and you've seen this, do you second guess yourself in that process? Only about 20 times a day. Um, yeah. But the technique has not been eliminating that. I've, I've found I'm incapable of eliminating that. And anybody who looks at me and is like, I never second guess myself, I'm like, you kind of are making me uncomfortable. because <laughs> I don't trust you. Because <laughs> yeah, 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 human beings, like the only thing we ever do is like kind of get it wrong at first. It's like I said about systems thinking. You get into a new system and you kind of learn it by making mistakes with it and oh, yeah. you know, not being successful at first. There's two things that I try and do there. The first one is I used to get into patterns where I'd second guess myself for six months. Mm. You know? yeah. And now when it comes up 20 times a day, I let it happen for about six seconds. But POV actually stands for point of view. And the reason I chose the term point of view is because when it came to exponentially evolving information technology, I'm often thinking and talking about things that I just learned about yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning I haven't thought about them a lot and I haven't talked about them a lot. And that's a space we're all in. So with POV, the way I kind of deal with that is I say, this is my current point of view which I reserve the right to change at any time based on new experience and information. Yeah. <laughs> so a POV is something that I have enough conviction about that I'm willing to take action. But I also like to say, keep the front end loose, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Brian Butler, a CEO I've worked with, I, I don't know if he said this or if he read somebody else who said this, but he once said to me, it's like strong opinion, but it's loosely held. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like ready to do a 180 if you need to. And so I try not to self-sabotage by second guessing. I try to have a point of view and lean into it, but I also am prepared to change my point of view based on new experience and information. And I found that kind of pivoting around the idea works well because, you know, usually I'll have a conversation with an engineer most of the time or a good user experience designer, mm-hmm. another great systems thinker, and they'll point out aspects to the thinking that I just haven't even considered, right. just haven't entered my thought domain. Yeah. And then once I hear that and I noodle on it for like a day, I come back and I'm like, I know that's what I was saying, but honestly, I think very differently now. So, <laughs> Well, and that's a really important value to have yeah. in any business as an engineer, as any role, is just the ability to be wrong and yeah. to allow yourself to be wrong or make mistakes or, or accept somebody else's point of view as like a, this is a better way to do it. I agree with that, but I don't like using the word wrong. Yeah. Because usually I'm only partially wrong. Like a lot of times I'm kind of directionally correct, but there's some fundamental pieces that I'm missing. And so it's like an evolution of my realization. The realization needs to kind of like get a little more solid. Mm -hmm. And so often when I'm talking with another person, what will happen is it's not that their idea was right and mine was wrong or that my idea was right and theirs was wrong. But there were components of thought on both sides of the discussion that once we shared them resulted in a new and even better idea – than either of the ones we were bringing to the table. But that idea, which seems like the new and better idea, will also eventually be kind of wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's like an iterative process. Yeah, approaching any problem with skepticism and if your coworkers can do the same thing, um, I think that makes for a really great way to solve problems. Yeah. 
So we really appreciate you coming out tonight and talking to us about your method. And we usually give everybody a chance to tell us what's going on in their life or if, if there's some way that you want people to contact you yeah. or information you want to give to the audience. Now's your chance. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So Rob Nelson, the CEO of Grow and I sat down in March and had a great conversation. And he said, this has been really transformative for our company. And I know this is a passion project of yours and that you really want to go do this. And he's like, I support you in that. And that was an amazing level of support from him. And so what I've been doing over these last four months is I've actually been revising all of the materials around the POV method. We've installed it now in more than 20 software as a service companies. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who've worked on our projects. That work has represented about 600 different like whiteboard to shipped software deliverables. And I wanted to take some time to just kind of collate all that into presentation-worthy materials. I've taken all that stuff and turned it into a series of workshops that I now do that are designed for product leadership teams. And the way I think about product leadership teams is you've got your – you often have your founder of the company and you have the leader of engineering and you have the leader of product management and user experience. And, and then there's usually kind of a small cadre of trusted people on the team who are also really supplementing leadership. And I wanted to target that group yeah. and say, hey, if you want to come in, obviously there's lots of software as a service companies that have succeeded without the POV method. We didn't invent the way to do SaaS better. The POV method is more a collection of what I've observed to be the best practices that tend to succeed the most in a SaaS environment. And so we have workshops that we're doing. August is uh, now sold out, but the September and October and November workshops are still available. And so if people would like to contact me to learn more about that, you can just email me at my email address. It's richard.trip at povmethod.com. Richard, thanks for being here with us. Really appreciate it. And once again, before we leave today, we just want to remind you guys, you know, you can find us on Instagram at the Utah CTO Show. We'd also appreciate you guys liking our podcast. And if you do like it, rate us. We'd love to get this out to more people, share it with your friends. Again, thanks for listening. And Richard, thanks for being here. My pleasure, guys. If your computing infrastructure is running in a cloud service like AWS or Azure, you've likely sunk time into manually configuring and maintaining a monitoring tool. Tasks like understanding baselines, fine-tuning thresholds, and examining visualizations for defects require significant time and effort, taking time away from your most important priorities. Wouldn't it be nice if you could automate this monitoring and alerting process? That's where Blue Matador comes in. Unlike all other monitoring tools on the market, Blue Matador eliminates the need to manually configure alerts. After a quick onboarding, Blue Matador instantly discovers all of your resources, automatically creates hundreds of alerts out of the box, and proactively notifies you of critical production issues. This saves you massive amounts of time and ensures that you'll always know the health of your cloud services. And right now, they are providing a special offer to our listeners here on the Utah CTO Show. Just head to bluematador.com slash Utah CTO show. Sign up for a free trial and integrate your AWS account or Kubernetes account for 14 days, and they will send you $100. They are so confident that you'll love their product that they are offering our listeners 100 bucks just to try it. So go to bluematador.com slash Utah CTO show to start your free trial today. Terms and conditions apply.